Kinotomic, a movie podcast that bridges the cinema nostalgia of the golden age of Hollywood with the explosive modernity of contemporary cinema. I am your host, Danny, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Nick. Hello! The premise of our show is very simple. For each week, we have carefully picked two films, which we think have things in common. We shall then discuss them to find where their common traits are. One is my suggestion, based on my particular area of expertise, Golden Age of Hollywood, and the other is chosen by my co-host, which is... So that would be anything from 1970s New Hollywood through to the current blockbuster age that we're living in. The only rule is both picks of the week have to be first-time viewing for the other person. Today, uh, before we start, did you have uh, anything to say at the beginning? Any housekeeping? Any... Yeah, house, house, you, can call it, you can call it housekeeping. Um, so last week, uh, I said about The Last Samurai uh, that, um, I wasn't, like, the score for that, The Last Samurai by, by Hans Zimmer wasn't anything special. Um, I said it was very, very good, but he wasn't, he was just kind of rehashing stuff that he did through the Thin Red Line. Um, since then, I have spent some time kind of listening to the score in isolation, and I was wrong. I think it's fantastic i honestly i it was so much better listening to it in isolation than through the film um so yeah i this is a rare occurrence because i am admitting that i was wrong um which doesn't happen too often i'm usually very i usually double down on my bad opinions but this one i'm i'm happy to admit that that uh that i was wrong on um I, I yeah I gave some more thought about the film and and kind of letting it stew a little bit in my head um kind of a little bit more positive kind of thinking over it than I was was when when we recorded so yeah I Danny I I'm was looking wrong. forward to hearing that from you next time you you've watched Call Me by Your Name so I'm pretty sure you will you will you'll change your mind. As they say, <laughs> as they say in to uh, deep sea divers, don't hold your breath. Oh, I'm um, not on that one. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah. Uh. You. You had some. You. I'm. I'm imagining you kind of have some things to say about the recent passing of uh, Olivia de Havilland. Yes. Um. I had. It just felt like I had to say something about her. We've discussed her. Um. A few episodes back, with her collaboration with um, Betty Davis. Um, it just feels to me that with the passing of, of the great dame, Olivia de Havilland, the, the golden age of Hollywood has just drawn itself further away from us, like it seems away from living memory. Um, having said that, she lived to be 104, which is ridiculous age. I've just, yeah... I've mentioned that on our, our previous episode. It seemed to me that she would live forever and I wanted her to live forever. I'm sure she did too. And um, for f classic film fans, I think she will anyway for all the films she's she's made and uh, what a trailblazer she's been. Uh, I just I found this lovely quote from her 
uh, from when she was asked how she would like to die. If I must, at some time, leave this life, I would like to do so, ensconced on a chaise longue, perfumed, wearing a velvet robe and pearl earrings, with a flute of champagne beside me, and having just discovered the answer to the last problem in a British cryptic crossword. I think that sums her up perfectly. She enjoyed life so much that she wanted to live forever, and she was a great actress. The industry owes her a great debt of gratitude, and I can't wait till we talk about her again on this podcast. So- yeah, um, I'm. I honestly, when I when I saw the news, I was, I was, I was shocked, like taken aback by it. Um, you know, I mean, but then again, you know, she was she was a hundred and four. <laughs> Um, I think so she, she wanted she, she to live to turn 104. I think that's what she wanted because she had just turned <laughs> it, and then like weeks later she passed. Yeah, um, such resilience um, is incredible. Yeah, and it was really good seeing like stories about her on 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 Twitter kind of pop up. Um, there was uh, one about her sister Joan Fontaine, which I hadn't heard before, um, which was really really interesting to read. So. Um, yeah a great a great great woman we kind of discussed that when we spoke about her in the past like a great great woman and i think i said like um when we spoke about in this our life um that it w- i would be i would like to see a, a film starring her that she like with her kind of getting a, a teeth into the role a bit more and i think we kind of i think we have one planned or we've got one coming up at some point we will definitely have one we will definitely plan something with her definitely yeah so we get we'll we'll, we'll go proper into the you know olivia de havilland territory um, territory then absolutely i look forward to that today's theme um however is slightly different i don't know if olivia de havilland ever starred in a western but that's today's theme westerns uh west go west so uh my pick of of this week is a 1954 film called johnny guitar and uh directed by nicholas ray and starring john crawford and i have a quick quick synopsis vienna has built a saloon outside of town and she hopes to build her own town once the railroad is put through but the townsfolk want her gone when four men hold up a stagecoach and kill a man, the town officials, led by Emma Small, come to the, come to the saloon to grab four of Vienna's friends, the dancing kid and his men. Vienna stands strong against them and is aided by the presence of an old acquaintance of hers, Johnny Guitar, who is not what he seems. Right, so this film is, is massive. There, there is a lot to unpack with regards to the production, marred by many, many conflicts, to the lavish technical details, the costumes, direction, the writing, with all its sexual undertones, the cinematography, to Peggy Lee's amazing song. But first, Nick, what did you think of the film? Right. So, the 50s Western, um, with its colour palette, you know, just, just go with the cliche here, with its colour palette, there's, you know, melodramatic themes and cliched acting and a cliched plot. Um, are films that I really don't like. Um, Calamity Jane being one of those films. I saw it for uni and I 
hated it. Um, usually with this podcast, I sit down on the sofa with a cup of tea and watch these films that Danny gives me to watch. And I kind of just, you know, you know, it's the, the, the day has happened and I'm sat on the sofa and I'm, I'm trying to relax, but I'm getting drawn into it. It's, you know, it's a, it's a usual ritual that I have. This time was slightly different. So I've, I've just recently moved to Edinburgh and due to the move and the overnight traveling and stuff, I'm, I'm just, I, I am like physically exhausted and, and, and really tired and stuff. And, but my new flat has something that I have not seen in three years, which is a bathtub. So I put my last bath bomb on in the hot water, got in the tub for a soak and I put on Johnny guitar because you know, like if I'm going to watch a film that I'm pretty sure that I'm going to be either ambivalent about or dislike, I might as well be in comfort and trying to relax at the same time. <laughs> but I'm sorry. Just a second. Okay. Continue. But you're right there you're yeah right, i'm yeah. fine yeah, i just okay. had to imagine yeah. you in the bath watching johnny guitar it's just a bit yeah. yeah okay continue no candles though there was no candles um the, the so the strangest thing happened i was kind of so relaxed <laughs> and kind of that i just let the film wash over me um pun intended and the film was really fucking good <laughs> um i was really shocked about how much i liked this film um so yeah (laughs) it was this film was so unconventional oh yeah um the color palette is is bright um almost at times like it feels like something out of a douglas sirk film um i thought the dialogue had uh, a, like a swing and a, and a rhythm and a song to it um i just the, the film just didn't fit in with the normal standard westerns that i you know i've been accustomed to i was incredibly impressed impressed by the acting all around i thought sterling hayden is excellent as the eponymous johnny guitar um you always feel kind of feel that there is something something under the surface with him um <laughs> I, I a little side thing i spent about half of the film trying to remember who his character was in Doctor Strangelove and then it dawned on me at the end that he was the paranoid fluid obsessed yes. General Jack D. River yes yes um, <laughs> as soon as I thought of that I couldn't get that out of my head so that was fun because uh- <laughs> all I got in my head is him sat there freaking out Peter Sellers over the fact that the, the Russians are trying to steal their fluids the blo- bodily fluids um, yes Oh my god, Precious, strange love is precious so bodily good. fluids. Um, to, be, <sighs> anyway. to be honest with you, when I first saw Johnny Guitar, I didn't put two and two together in terms of Sterling Hayden being the same guy that was worried about our precious bodily fluids in Doctor Strangelove. So I had a, like a fresh, you know, approach of a fr- yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't let it distract my away from the film or anything. It wasn't distracting. It was just like. Oh, it's him. Um, yeah, you know, that kind of that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Uh, so I thought um, Scott Brady as the dancing kid was excellent. You know, there was there was really something quite interesting going on with him. Um, I thought. I mean, I saw Ernest Borgnine as Bart, and that was 
quite cool because he was really kind of almost hamming it up as like you know quite a ski sleazy skeezy not nice man um and then you had uh emma small um played by mercedes mccambridge who was utterly utterly despicable horrible a proper like boo hiss villain that you couldn't wait to get their just desserts and and you know die um she was like oh my god she was like hatred hatred yeah hatred personified hatred personified (laughs) but the film belongs to joan crawford as vienna um she makes it known very very early on when you kind of meet her as a character that she is a woman in a man's world and is doing everything that she can to fight for what is hers um Compared with Emma, who kind of manipulates men into her bidding, like she manipulates the posse and the men to kind of fulfil her desire for, you know, it's it's not really vengeance, it's not really revenge, it's just bloodthirsty bitchiness. Um, Vienna is kind of, she's very honourable and like assured. The way she treats her staff, like her, her staff, and and so she's very like quite honourable in that way. She's very confident, has herself as his own as her own woman. Um, and I, honestly, I thought her performance was excellent. She wasn't really relying on anybody. Um, the film kind of does it at the end, where Johnny Guitar, called Johnny Logan, kind of saves her from getting hung and uh, you know there's there's some bits of you know the standard sexism going on but all in all like there's you know it's quite unconventional in other way um i thought it was interesting how this film kind of depicts the townspeople specifically the concerns of, of emma um she's so frightened of the railroad coming in and kind of changing the town for worse and you know that that she ends up making herself very morally bankrupt you know, she morally bankrupts herself into being, you know, frightened and and scared and then hate hateful and 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 then it it kind of then it ends up making sense that the dancing kid and his gang all meet untimely ends as as the West at this point what with the railroad coming, you know, it it is saying that it doesn't have room for these kinds of people anymore um johnny logan you know he changed his whole persona to kind of survive and adapt and adopting the name johnny guitar you know he doesn't carry a gun at the start of the film because you know that's he's moved away from that kind of western frontier life yeah frontier life you know um it's it's a very interesting parallels going on between this film and, and the next film we're gonna be talking about um i honestly i thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed this film um nicholas ray uh directed this whose film in a lonely place we discussed back in episode eight and in that episode we kind of i kind of came to the conclusion that it's quite an unconventional film noir you know yeah. in the lonely place you know you, you it is a very unconventional film noir and he does an excellent job in this making this western film unconventional as well as you know as well as being totally gripping um he followed this with uh rebel without a cause which is a masterpiece um you know and containing you know one of the greatest performances ever from from james dean you're tearing me apart that's my james dean impression um and that you know that's an unconventional you know teen oriented or teen orientated drama 
So in the three films I have seen from Nicholas Ray, you know, I, you know, I've, I've just kind of ended up coming to the conclusion that he made the most unconventional genre films within the studio system, and I couldn't be more thankful for it because, yeah, you know, Johnny Guitar, um, you know, is a western. It's is on. It's really, really fucking good. <laughs> um, you know, there's that scene in, and to kind of finish up, there's the scene in in High Fidelity where. Um, Jack Black and and um, uh, John Cusack are kind of stood around their little you know till area, and they got this tape playing, and it's blaring out this music, and they're kind of listening to it. And John Cusack just said, "Who who is this?" And and Jack Black's like, "Oh, it's you know the, the kids from outside that have you know skated and stuff." And they're like, "Yeah, wait, that's them." And and Jack Black, you know, puts his head in his hands. Says, "Yeah, it is. It's." it's really fucking good um and that's kind of how i feel about johnny Car- guitar is that this film is it's it's really fucking good <laughs> well <laughs> yep anything else to add about this film no i mean i i i've i've got some stuff kind of later on when we end up talking about the next film but that's kind of just only linking in the two films cool. but we'll come we'll come to that in a minute so yeah i'm glad you liked it um, I wasn't sure if you would. Um, I wasn't sure if you would understand the sort of star persona that just oozes from, uh, you know, her every eyelash. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm talking, of course, of John Crawford. Um, I, I, I like, I, I like the fact that you picked up on how how unconventional it is and how sort of like it just sort of takes everything and it just um, puts it on its head. Uh, I thought it was a feminist western if there ever was one um it's it's a good some call it camp due to uh, vienna's like wearing trousers she's like a cross dresser and also it's it's due to the sexual tension between her and emma smalls played by mercedes mccambridge um which is so obvious it just it, it feels almost funny at times uh the men are just there just props just the background john crawford wears the pants and how this is one of my favorite films of crawford's and i think it shows why she was such a big star she's like a spectacle in herself she and in this again she reinvented herself although she wouldn't she wouldn't let uh director nicholas ray shoot any close-ups of her on location because the light couldn't be manipulated the way she wanted it um, but yeah, all all the close-ups were done on a soundstage. But what close-ups? I mean, it it is a it is a western, but it looks so gorgeous. Like the play, the perfect close-ups. Not not a hair out of place. Not even when she's like swimming through the ravines and um, waterfalls, <laughs> she still comes out on the other side looking perfect. Um. So yeah, I think by this point in her in her career, she she'd been in the movies for thirty years. She knew every trick in the book, and she used it. Um, I found some very interesting uh, stuff about the production. Uh, I think we talked about her like her feuds and her sort of dislikes when we talked about um, whatever happened to Baby Jane, um, and we agree that she was very professional on 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 the set. Um, I think with this, she was very professional when the cameras were rolling. However, when they weren't rolling, well, 
to my to my limited knowledge about John Crawford's off-screen persona, and this term is used slightly loosely because some might say she never had a, an off-screen persona because she was always on. Um, she'd always been professional on set. But this, during during Johnny Guitar, was quite a display of div diva behaviour. Like, proper diva. You ready? I'm... I, I mean, I'm really intrigued about what so, she did. So basically, <laughs> yeah. so according to some sources, the crew broke into spontaneous applause after one of Mercedes McCambridge's powerhouse scenes in which she basically chews the scenery. Uh, this infuriated John Crawford, of course. Um, and then, Nick, according to Nicholas Ray, they he, get, he began shooting her um, McCambridge um, in early in the morning before Crawford came in into the set and then Crawford caught them at it and she flew into a rage, broke into McCambridge's dressing room and slashed her clothes to shreds. Wow. <laughs> and um, there's also a story that she actually took this, her clothes and just scattered them across the motorway and sh the, the, the sort of crew the costume designers and the crew um had to reassemble them and just pick them up <laughs> and mercedes mccambridge blamed her next two years of inactivity on crawford's repeated attempts to blacklist her they hated each other like both on screen and off screen um and yeah, I just I was trying to understand exactly what happened because I found um, people. I mean, both Sterling Hayden and Nicholas Ray said it was one of those f films that they hated doing and they hated every moment they were on set. Sterling Hayden said there is not enough money in Hollywood to lure me into making another picture with, picture with John Crawford, and I like money. <laughs> Nicholas Ray was quite unhappy as well. He said, quite a few times I would have to stop the car and vomit before I go. I got to work in the morning. Um, but this was also helped by, well, helped, um, by the negative reviews the film received from the American critics when it opened, which is quite a shame. Um, I'll get to talk to, about that soon. I just, I just thought, it, why would she do that in... Why would you behave like that? And there's, there's. I think I came up with a few ideas as to why John Crawford would would be so vicious on set to her co-star, when we know that she could, she would, she would always be very, very pleasant to the crews and and even to Betty Davis. Um. Basically, I found out that I think Mercedes McCambridge. Um, had an alcohol problem. I know for sure that John Crawford was a he heavy drinker. So this might have spiraled out of control in terms of like spats whilst being drunk. Also, um, John Crawford owned the rights to the novel on which the story is based. And she sold them to Republic Pictures who made the film with the provision that she stars in it. So I think she felt slightly entitled to executive power over the cast which she didn't have. I think she wanted Paul Newman in the role of Johnny Guitar and she wanted Claire Trevor. Well, she wanted Barbara Stanwyck to start with um, as as Emma, but they didn't have enough money. 
and then she wanted Claire Trevor for the part of Emma and but definitely not Mercedes McCambridge uh, some say she was jealous of her because she was the younger um, actress I don't know another reason I, I think she was difficult might be uh, because she was she felt that perhaps after, after 30 years in the business she deserved better treatment than what she was getting from the industry and her peers um, like I said on our episode on Baby Jane, it, after a certain, I think all throughout the fifties, actresses that were over forty were had to fight tooth and nail for any any parts at all, and um, I think with this film, it's it's kind of at the it sits at the border between like old Hollywood and new Hollywood. And Joan Crawford, she probably felt she was like all the authority was kind of slipping from her. And one needs to bear in mind that this was her whole life. Her career was her whole life. She was a perfectionist and her image in front of the cameras was everything that she had, everything to her. And um, yeah, so to lose control of that, I think it might have, yeah, it might have been quite, quite difficult to, to, to fathom. The script was said to have been written by blacklisted writer Ben Maddow. Remember, this is still during the McCarthy era. Um, however, that story seems to be discredited. It, Philip Jordan is the one who's got the, write, the, the script writing credit for this. And he's been known to rewrite scenes to please John Crawford and make her part better by emphasizing the sort of cross-dressing woman-man element as well as the big tension between Vienna and Emma which of course culminates with the big shootout between the two women uh, I thought that was brilliant I thought it's just like yeah um, I, I, I'm glad that you picked up on how, how incredible the relationship is there's there's little room for all the other characters except for Vienna and Emma I just I liked Sterling Hayden, but I, I thought that whenever these two were, like the showdown was just incredible. They're just so fierce. Um, Vienna is the woman of, of slightly loose morals um, in that society who quote unquote respectable people fear and have to chase out of town. But like you said, is this decent after all? Um, I love that particularly the scene where she's wearing the innocent white dress playing the piano, a picture of the Muniz. Um, and Emma, Emma is the repressed Victorian, the ultimate repressed Victorian, I think. Um, Mercedes McCambridge just chews the seat, you know, it's just like, yeah, there's, she's larger than life. I thought, I thought, I thought every rant was worthy of, of a, like Pacino level ranting, if not more so. Um, and you kind of see why she, she, maybe John Crawford was kind of afraid she might steal her thunder and sort of run take the movie and run away with it there was fire in her performance and she, if if john crawford hadn't been the powerful movie star that she was um and made sure that to put her in her place by sort of destroying her costumes um maybe mercedes mccambridge might have might have run away with the picture but i i doubt it if it if it'd been a different actress in in the role of vienna she she probably would have but they were both like too too strong and i think they make the movie i think they just their rapport is just brilliant i like sterling hayden he plays the title role with with 
uh, a level of like sexy swagger that I don't know it seems it's for me it seems to kind of go nowhere because Vienna is just too busy having it out with Emma and I found this really funny quote from uh, François Truffaut um, the critic Dennis Schwartz recalls that François Truffaut said it reminded him the film reminded him of the beauty and the beast with Sterling Hayden being the beauty um, so yeah I thought uh, that was quite funny and I just wanted to give a shout out to my favorite character one of my favorite characters other than of course Emma and Vienna is um, Tom the um, helping hand played by John Carradine and I I just wanted to quote him I think he says at one point that oh nobody noticed me notices me I'm part of the furniture and then there's that heartbreaking scene at the end when he's he's shot and he's dying and he's kind of happy that he's the center of attention I thought he was just yeah very very lovable character yeah that 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 made me that made me really sad yeah it was just like <laughs> I knew there was gonna be I knew there was gonna be like some kind of character that was gonna go that was gonna you know tug yeah on the I just a bit, but... yeah he was yeah um I, th I found it interesting how this film was poorly received in America and on 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 in, in Europe was was just like the French went mad for it and all the symbolism all these sexual homoerotic undertones there are quite a few books written about the queer elements in, in Johnny Guitar and what happens when you take the ultimate movie star, the epitome of glamour, and put her in a western. Um, I thought the result was great. Um, I thought it was like, yeah, an, an interesting film that lives at the border between the old school and the new school of cinema. Um, I thought, yeah. Nicholas Ray, like you said, it was visionary. He just made everything like a better against the grain. I think there's a reason the most celebrated film that he did was Rebel Without a Cause, a film about teenager, um, starring a method actor, James Dean, which is kind of like the total opposite of of John Crawford's style. But I think they both work in in their respective um films, and I think. This is kind of like what it, it it's it's a, a film about transition. Um, the railroad is coming through. Um, there's there's no room for the old ways. The new people have to adapt. I don't know if if Joan Crawford would have. I mean, we know that she tried she tried to adapt, but not successfully. Um, but I I think with this, this was just like yeah. A great it's it's a great piece of filmmaking that looks back and sort of assesses what like old old Hollywood stands for but also brings new elements in um it's it's a both a brilliant star vehicle for John Crawford and a fresh approach to to the western genre and and yeah the queer genre as well so yeah yeah I got, I, I'm definitely I the queer stuff like it it was kind of lurking in the background for me like i'm not i'm i'm not i'm like queer theory in in film is something that i know next to nothing about um so that that is definitely something that with this film like i i have heard about um so i mean if, if you know danny if you know of any 
you know pieces that might be worth reading or will be worth reading yeah. uh, to do with queer theory in this film i would be more than more than happy to to read over those uh you know with this film i you know something i would definitely like to you know pour over <laughs> of course i'll find something <laughs> But cool. yeah, I just thought it was uh, it was brilliant. I, it, it sort of it stood out for me from the beginning, from like that the opening scene where Emma walks in and she looks at her and she's like, "I will, I'm going to kill you," and she looks the way John Crawford is sort of standing up on the stairs and looks down to her and she looks up to her and they're like, "Okay, there's a lot of sexual tension between these two women." Um, yeah. So yeah, I think that's kind of it. Um. We could have t talked a bit more about all the costumes worn by by John Crawford, but I think yeah, we can probably leave that to a like a bonus bonus round. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at one point, you know, she has the the yellow shirt, though no, the red one in the mine, and then the swimming, and then she goes into the yellow shirt with and the um, and the white and both... innocent dress that she wears, and yeah, and the it's, yeah, it's all yeah, but yeah, very. Butch. Um, yeah. As butch as, as John Crawford can make it. <laughs> what the, the thing is, like, I, I mean, maybe it's just because I'm surrounded by strong women in my life, but I don't see women wearing jeans <laughs> and demanding, you know, things to be a butch thing. I just see that as, like, a, a, a strong, you know, woman thing. So, yeah, but it was 1954. Yeah, it was 1954. Yeah. Okay. No. Okay. Cool. So yeah, what's what's our next film? Um. So the film we've got this kind of matching on with with Johnny Guitar is uh, Robert Altman's um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller from 1971, starring uh, Warren Beatty and Judy Christie. Um. I have a little kind of brief synopsis. Uh, a gambler and a prostitute become business partners in a remote old west mining town. And their enterprise thrives until a large corporation arrives on the scene. Um, so Robert Altman is a filmmaker that I think has made so many masterpieces. And I think this is definitely one of them. Um, but I am really, really intrigued to know what you think of, of McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And also, I'm, I'm really intrigued to know if you have any familiarity with, with Robert Altman's work. Um... I don't think so. I might have. Um, I think we had this conversation before, and I think I said I don't don't really know any of his films. Oh, of course, I no. know of him, and I think we'd had. Yeah, you know of him. Yeah, no, that's um, fine. I remember we had a at um and in our film studies course we had an example of. I think if I'm not mistaken, he was one of one of the first directors to start using like real speech and like people talking over each other and yeah. and sort of more natural way of of working with like space in terms of acting and in terms of like yeah. dialogue as well like more natural not waiting for the other person to say something you can just cut them and and yeah and it definitely feels like that in this film and it for me at times i thought i had to sort of put like noise cancelling headphones on so I can understand exactly what the, what the people were saying um, because it just sometimes they were mumbling sometimes they were, you, you, you would miss the third every third word you wouldn't understand 
um but yeah i just it's for me it it was a, it started as a, like quite a seedy feel to it like quite like yeah a bit seedy but it was made better by leonard cohen's music as the credits started to roll and i heard leonard's going vo voice and guitar i had the I had the same sort of feeling of glee as I did when I first saw Louis Mal's um, Lift to the Scaffold, which has Miles Davis's unmistakable and unique trumpet during the opening credits. Mind you, there are two different films, but the opening credits have got this distinct, like, musician's incredible sound. Um, so I was, yeah, I was quite like, I recognised the, the music and I'm like, yeah, this is going to be great. This is, it just felt, yeah, like I said, it felt a world that I didn't really know much about, that I didn't really particularly like. It's a world where the main character has to haggle over, over three prostitutes, one of whom has definitely some mental health problems. Uh, at first I didn't like Warren Beatty's acting at all. I kept, at least for the first few, like, say, 20 minutes, I kept thinking he's movie star first, actor second. Um, but as soon as Julie Christie shows up, I it, it all changed. She was, it felt to me that she was running rings around Warren Beatty. Um, yeah, so it was kind of, for me, it was a bit of a slow start, but it picked up. I took, it took me a while to start to care about the characters. Uh, Mrs. Miller, played by Julie Christie, has a trauma in her past. Uh, I, 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 that's what I thought. I was kind of hoping to it to be more revealed to have more um character de development. Um you see her using um, um drug she's in an opium den she's yeah. I was kind of yeah more de character development from her part. I think she needed more screen time. Um yeah, pe perhaps less of those unwashed scorny fellas mumbling a lot. <laughs> But um, it was, yeah, I love the cinematography. I liked the look of the film a lot. I understand they tried something with the film stock before filming. I'm sure you have something to say about that. I do, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I have to say, Cruelty Towards Cats does not sit well with me. Uh, I did not like that. <laughs> so, yeah, McCabe. I think I didn't like I said I didn't care much for him at first. He's he's a bumbling idiot, he, but he grows on you. He won me over with the um frozen muscle got poetry in me speech. And I I want I wanted to listen to that now actually. Sometimes sometimes when I take a look at you, I just I just keep looking and I'm looking. So I won't feel your little body up against me so bad. I think I'm a bust. I keep trying to tell you in a lot of different ways. Just one time you could be sweet without no money around. I think I could... Well, I'll tell you something. I got poetry in me. I do. I got poetry in me. But I ain't gonna put it down on paper. I ain't no educated man. I got sense enough not to try it. never say nothing to you. If you just one time let me run the show, I'd... 
freezing my soul. That's what you're doing. Freezing my soul. I wanted to give him a hug after after that speech because he's he's human all the way to the end and that's what gets him killed. But his heart is in the right place. He's he's a bit of an idiot, but he's also kind of a good businessman who well, knows an opportunity when he sees one, but also misses an opportunity when he misses one. So there's that thing of luck, maybe. It, towards the end, it kind of made me understand that the portrayal of McCabe is quite cleverly done. Um, like, did he or didn't he kill the man he was rumored to have killed all those years ago? Um, he didn't seem to be the kind of person to do that. But he's like human through and through. He acts cocky, but he's not really. He had luck with finding Mrs. Miller because she was the clever one of the two. Um, but he might—he just as well might have gotten himself killed ten times before by some other gang. Um, I liked it. It—I didn't think it was a perfect film. Um, but it had a charm to it. I felt Julie Christie needed more screen time. I think she was by far the best film thing about the film. Um, I just felt like, yeah, there was maybe a S Sam Peckinpah reference, The Wild Bunch, like deglamorizing the Western image. I could, I could get on board with that. I, I, I did, yeah, I did like it. It grew on me. It was a bit, yeah, it was a bit slow, but I, yeah, I think that's, yeah. Okay. No, that's, uh, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm really glad you liked it. Um, I saw this film, first thing I saw this film, I think it was, well, not last year, year before, um, I saw it on Christmas Day, I think, if I remember rightly. And it's kind of like one of those films to kind of sit and watch when there's a log fire going and, and it's the middle of winter. Like, this kind of feels like one of those films. Yeah, I love the snow. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a stickler for snow. I love snow. And yeah, yeah, it was just yeah, beautiful. So um, yeah, I mean, I like I said, I I think this film is is a masterpiece. Um, the film, the the cinematographer uh, Vilmos uh, Zygmunt, who also shot uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, uh, The Deer Hunter, uh, Tapalma's Blowout, and uh, Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye, among many many others. Um, he kind of shoots this film as though it's like almost like one of the old photographs from the era, you know. Yeah. There is there is a soft like, there is yeah. a softness to the frame, um, like an oldness and like it, it just feels old and, and there's an almost like a, a sadness to it as well. Um, I said I, I think I think Robert Vaughan is a filmmaker that is 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 highly really really highly prolific. Um. And I, 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 his films do, they film extremely natural, but they also come with uh, like a, their own kind of style. Um, MASH, which is, 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 is one of his masterpieces and is one of the greatest war films or anti-war films of all time, um, you know, ended up launching the TV series that was longer than the war that it was portraying. Um, but that film is a, it's a, it's a comedy, but it's, it's so so link it lingers on death like death is around every corner in that film because it's set in, in in the korean war um this film kind of has the same in my opinion it kind of has the same kind of feel not death so much but like the feeling of 
like a lost era, like the old, the oldness or the, you know, the old past. Um, like you said that, you know, at the start of the film, uh, you know, you, you kind of, you have this overlapping dialogue and the camera is obstructed and, you know, it takes, it takes some getting used to at start. Cause you know, it's, it's, you're not kind of used to that almost in, in these kind of films. Um, it took me a while anyway. And you know, it, what it does, what that effect does, it kind of just, it places you there. Like it, it makes you feel as though you are there, you know, in that bar. Um, and you know, we almost, we, we feel the oddness of Warren Beatty's McCabe coming in and, almost owning the place you know the locals you know we we I, I mean i did i don't know about you but i mean i i felt as though you know the locals were taken aback by him and and and, and again you know in turn i i was as well and then we kind of just end up i mean i did i mean it took you a while but for me i was ended up being like charmed by him almost that you know he had this kind of confidence about him that we later learn is is I don't say misplaced, but it becomes obvious that he is not as smart or not as switched on as he portrays himself yeah. to be. Yeah. Um. You know, he, he we see that he wants to succeed in an in, a, in an ever growing country. You know, you know, in a country where a man can stroll into town and end up making something of himself. Um. What's really interesting with this is that Warren Beatty. Warren Beatty's McCabe probably would not have been the success that he thought he would have been if it wasn't for Julie Christie's Mrs. Miller exactly. showing up. Um, you know, behind every man is behind every great man is a, is a great woman, and Mrs. Miller is definitely the woman behind the man. Um, she sees through his facade almost immediately and becomes, you know, the much needed partner to McCabe. Um, they have a there is a definite chemistry between the two of them and it, it it's so palatable palat- I can't even say that word but it, you, you feel it so much you feel it deep within you and there's you know a mutual respect between the two and, and a mutual need between the two as well um the way the things that really I love about this film is that the way this little mining town you know ends up becoming a big a slightly bigger mining town is shown isn't one it isn't shown by like a defined narrative you know what we end up what ends up happening is we kind of just see glimpses of life you know it's like a very loose narrative you know people kind of walk in and walk out of the world there and you know we come to recognize faces and you know being like oh we saw him earlier and all this kind of thing like the like the reverend um who has to be has to be the inspiration for the reverend in the tv series deadwood if people have seen deadwood you'll know what i'm talking about um i said in in johnny guitar that that it shows how it kind of almost shows how the west uh, you know it adapts and and it ends up becoming modernizes and kind of moves on without its gunslingers you know those that those that don't want to change and don't you know and won't survive um here like mccabe doesn't want to give in to the demands of the big company you know he to lose what he's built up and then kind of when it comes to light that he will end up losing his life it's it's too late for him to kind of reason you know and even though he fights and and guns down those that are against him he collapses in the snow and and dies 
Um, and it's this really weird, it's a really, really sad ending um, because the town is distracted by the burning church and they're together joining to, you know, save the church in this communal thing. And then we see Mrs. Miller, Miss, Mrs. Miller in the opening den, opium den, you know, kind of consumed by the culture and the world that has ended up coming to the mining town. Um, and it's like a really, really sad. It is a very, it might, it's a very, very sad film. It, it's, it is. It's. It makes you think that it. They might be the, the main characters in their own stories, but they're not the main characters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think when I think what the character that kind of almost captures the sadness and the feeling of a lost soul or of somebody that doesn't belong in this world anymore is um, Keith Carradine shows up at one point as a as a cowboy. Yes, I liked him. Very, very, yeah, very, very boyish cowboy. You know, he's got these boyish good looks and, you know, he's he's got this enthusiasm about him and he, he kind of strolls into town, you know, and he's he's such a like a goodness about him but he's so clearly a man that is on the frontier kind of just traveling around and he can't believe it is luck that he's able to be with all these women <laughs> and he's kind of like a good man that just happens to be in town and you know because he's just passing through at the end of the day and he's you know he's socks and you know i mean it's but then the bounty hunters come along butler breed and the kid and they come to town and on on the orders from the mining company to do away with the cave and the cowboy is then gunned down on the bridge and he was a kind-hearted but ultimately doomed soul um because the cowboy has no place in this modern world of big companies and you know leonard cohen's music plays over certain parts of this film and it is such a perfect fit you know, so often his music feels as though feels like it's that for a lost soul. Yes. Um, for me, for McCabe and Mrs. Miller and the Cowboy, you know, they are lost souls of the West. You know, and I that's just what kind of how I feel with this film. Um, I just have a little kind of a couple of interesting bits about the making of nothing, nothing too big. So they shot the film almost in sequential order, which is which is highly unusual. So that's you know start to finish for those that that don't know um but near the ending of shooting um it started to snow this that wasn't it wasn't intentional um with only the the church fire and then the standoff scenes to kind of left to shoot warren Beatty didn't want to shoot in the snow because <laughs> he feared it was too dangerous and too expensive um but it it, it had to be done for continu continuity sake uh robert altman just was like yeah, we're doing it because We've got nothing else to do, um, which is quite a good way of filming it. Um, the effect of which I think is that is that you know in in the normal western you know like the showdown and the standoff is usually in you know in full sun it's high noon yeah you know like we saw in like we saw in Johnny Guitar but here it's it's in the early hours of the morning it's snowing it's it's ungraceful it's you know it's it's just so kind of perfect for the film. Yeah. You know, I, I, it's unglamorized. It's not what you'd expect. And the way yeah. he dies is not also not what you would expect. He doesn't, he just dies that no one, you know, no one notices. 
No, it, it's like he almost kind of bleeds out. Yeah. You know, he's he's on his way back from he he wins the shootout, but he's on his way back and he's struggling through the snow, and it's almost as though he just kind of bleeds out. And you know, it's an un it's an undramatic way to go because he just yes, it's just in the snow. Um, yeah. So, like you alluded to, the the look of the film, there is a really really interesting look with the film. Um, Altman and Zygmunt chose to um, like flash, which is kind of pre is flash, which is a term for pre-fogging the film negative before you know its eventual exposure, um, as well as kind of use like filters on the cameras and stuff. Whether rather than to um, you know manipulate it in post-production, um, is to give it this look. Basically, one of the reasons was is that the studio could not then force Altman to change the look into something less distinctive. So it was purposefully done because he was like, I don't want the studio to fuck with my film, so I'm going to do this before we shoot. And then, you know, they're just going to have to put up with it, which is a, <laughs> is a very, very clever way of doing it. Um, and like I said, you end up just getting this amazing look about the film. Um it's it's one of the it's it i think it's one of the best looking films of the genre it looks great um uh kind of to finish off i've got a little quote from roger ebert um so he said that the film is quote one of the saddest films i've ever seen filled with a yearning for love and home that will not ever come not for mccabe not with mrs miller not in the town of presbyterian church which which cowers under a grey sky always heavy with rain or snow the film is a poem an elegy full of dead um yeah. yeah i think that kind of sums up the film like i yeah it is a film for the lost souls of the west and you know where johnny guitar kind of shows you know the themes the one of the things running through that film is you know you have to kind of adapt to the west you know to the front to the railroads coming to town otherwise you're going to get gunned down you know this film shows what happens you know when when that has happened you know yeah so... progress asks for more progress and then yeah there's the big guy and the little guy and in I think in Johnny Guitar, the little guy will sometimes win, um, i.e. Vienna. Yeah. Um, and with with this is the little guy will not win. It's it's more realistic, much more realistic, hence much sadder and yeah, quite poetic as well. Yeah, it just just I mean just the way that the film kind of ends on julie christie in in the opium den um you know she is the culture and the world has kind of been brought to her and she's using it to she's ended up being i wouldn't say corrupted by it but kind of poisoned by it to escape from her past trauma um which is you know alluded to through the film yeah um and the way she the way she goes out as well it's like McCabe, McCabe comes into the film almost as though he is self-assured and confident and is kind of brought through this journey of, oh, no, he's not confident. Oh, he's trying to get there and he's trying to right his mistake. 
and then he try he has to fight back and try to live but then he's ultimately killed for it um julie christie comes into the film as this self-assured confident i want this i know you're full of shit yeah and we are going to do this this way and then as things kind of succeed and then she, you know she does warn mccabe but then she kind of falls off and just goes into the you know the the, the smoke of the opium den and and yeah it's she lets her yeah. demons get to her yes yeah um it, it yeah it's it's an arc it's an arc it's a character arc but it's not one with a with a happy ending well, there's no um, there's no happy ending in life <laughs> no no spoiler alert for everybody we're all gonna die um, <laughs> i mean if, if dame olivia de Havilland has died we're all gonna die at the age of 104 yeah um what? yeah yeah so yeah this 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 film is is like i said i i think it is it is a masterpiece and and um i think it really does fit with johnny guitar like i there's agree a really, like i think it's a I really interesting so. line of through through lines between the two films cool so yeah that's that's kind of that's kind of me done with 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 that um i don't know if you've got anything more to add uh no um thanks for that nick that was yeah, most illuminating what have we got on for next week um so next week uh is going to be a really really interesting one um we're we are changing we are taking you know i said last week we're taking a hard left almost a hairpin turn this time we're, we're doing like you know a, a hand break at 60 miles per hour turn you know on the motorway drifting down the street and zooming back down the other way we are we are just veering off over the cliff like Thelma and Louise so next week we are doing a film which Danny called a few episodes back the zaniest film ever to be zaned and I had to kind of get her to repeat that because it's quite a sentence um, that being Gold Diggers of 1933 by director Melvin Leroy. And we are partnering that with Team America World Police oh. from 2004, directed by Trey Parker. Actually, I don't think I said that about this film. I think I was referring to 20th Century with um, Carol Lombard and John Barrymore. But this is quite a zany film as well, and I okay. and I can't wait for you to see it, and I can't wait to hear your thoughts about it, and I can't wait to see Team America. There, I said it. So I I I said I said on the phone to you last week that um, you know, you, you puppets. Oh, they're all about the puppets, yeah. and you said that you were thirty four. And don't want puppets. Well, you've made me watch um, it now, so I have to. I'm see making it. you watch puppets. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. A very, very, very. In a straight jacket film. with like the Alex the Large or the Panafinalia. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly, I'm really curious to know. Um, before we kind of finish off, I just kind of want to get an expectation there for the, for the listeners. Um, are you familiar with with any work by Trey Parker and Matt Stone? You know specifically South Park. Um, I saw South Park. 
the bigger, any... longer, and uncut. And I saw some. Oh, so you've seen the film? I've seen the film, and I've seen some of the yeah. episodes. Uh, Are you a fan? Yes, I no? like it. Yeah, I love. I mean, it's it's very clever humor. Okay, we, we. I'm hoping then you'll get there with Team America. Okay. Um, okay. I'm honestly, I'm really intrigued by by uh, Gold Diggers because, is it, is it one of those musicals you were going on about the what do they call it? Um. um well, it's free code. Yeah. And there's a lot of skin. Right. And there's John Blondell, and Ruby Keeler. And Warren William at his most gorgeous. And um, yeah, I'll let you watch it. Uh, I'm not going to tell okay. you any more of it. No, no, no. I'm, 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 I'm really looking forward to it. But there's um, a lot of so tap be... dancing in it. And there's Bursley Ber okay. Berkeley. I mean, uh, Team America has got puppets fighting, which Yay. is funny. Um <laughs> So yeah, uh, that will be next week for everybody. Um, tune in for that if you want to hear Danny's opinion on on Team America. Um, I have a feeling it's going to be something worth listening to. <laughs> um, so that will be that for this week. Um, Danny, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at KinoJoan and my website is KinoJoan.co.uk um, You can find me on Twitter at Nick S. Chandler and my website is SuperAtomicVision.com um, you can also find me on Letterbox. Um, just search Nicholas uh, Nicholas Stewart Chandler on there. You should be able to find me. Um, we have our own uh, podcast Twitter, which is at Keenotomic, and we've got our email account, which is Keenotomic at gmail.com. Drop us an email. Um, I don't know if you, Danny, wants to know anything from the listeners. Um, yeah. What? What did you think of of John Crawford's performance in Johnny Guitar, and why do why do you think she was such a diva on set? There we go. So so everybody, there's there's your assignment. <laughs> 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 let yeah. let us know. I'm really really intrigued to know your know your know your opinions. Um, so it is a goodbye and thank you for listening for me. And a goodbye and thank you for listening for me. I love you. What if you're cruel, you can be kind.